My name is John and I am an alcoholic. But you knew that, right? Yeah. Um, I want to echo something that Alex said. This is not my comfort zone. When I phoned my sponsor and told him that I was doing this, he said, John, whatever you do, don't teach. I said, but that's what I like to do. <laughs> that's my comfort zone. This is not my comfort zone, and I don't know why, but I think it's because you're all my friends and I want you to love me. And that is sincere. So it's, am I going to make a fool of myself? You'll all laugh and you'll remember for ten years. So, about ten years, exactly ten years ago, I was asked to um, come forth and share a gratitude day. And I refused. And I refused at that time because I was in a really, really deep depression over some traumatic events that had happened within my life. And I was one sad, unhappy camper. And I thought, how am I going to stand up there in front of all these people and give the AA pep talk when I feel the way I do? And it was even at that time I was still feeling a bit of the sad syndrome that comes on with a lot of people around November. I think that's maybe why they stuck Gratitude Day here. It's to cheer people up. Let's get out and have some fun. Let's boogie a little bit. And uh, I rather suspect that. I'm not sure. But at the time, I said no. And I violated a rule that I'd made for myself at that time, which was before any major decision, you phone your sponsor. And I wasn't going to do that because I knew he'd try and talk me out of it. So I phoned my sponsor. He's from Campbell River. Welcome to the people from Campbell River. And uh, I phoned him a few days later and I said what my decision was. I said, I've been asked to share gratitude day. You know the crisis that I'm going through. And I said no. And he listened to the long excuse that I had, which he always does. And then finally he said, all you need is gratitude. This is a central theme of my life. So I made a, a vow right at that time that from that point on, in my life, uh, that point on, if anybody asked me to speak at one of these gratitude days, I was going to say yes. And I figured it was a safe thing to do because I figured you guys would hold a grudge for at least 25 years and I'd never get it. <laughs> but that hasn't happened apparently. Or maybe you have held a grudge and you know I'd be nervous as hell so you asked me to come up here. <laughs> I don't know. I'll figure out the conspiracy later. So here I am. And before I got up here, of course, I asked a couple of people, of, okay, what do you do in one of these gratitude talks? Yeah, you're supposed to talk about gratitude. The first question, of course, comes to my mind when I ask, I ask Gordy, how long do I talk for? And he says, 40 minutes. And I thought, does Ray know about this? <laughs> <laughs> Takes me a good 10 minutes to get through the bullshit. <laughs> but... <clears throat> If ever. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I don't know why I just thought of that. But I asked some people, do I tell the truth? Or I do the AA pep talk? And people said, no, you tell the truth. Jack told me to share from the heart. Ron over there said, just lots of mea culpa, lots of God, and sit down. Oh, okay. 
Mea culpa means everything's my fault and all the good stuff in my life belongs to God. That happens to be true. I don't know why, but at these AA talks, I listened to a number of these tapes when I first came in. And the first one I had was Sandy B. Drop the Rock. Why was I ever glad to hear that thing? He told an awful lot of my story. And I've heard several other ones since that told my story. And that's strange, eh? We get exactly what we're supposed to get. Anyway, um, one of the things that seems to signify these AA talks is people like to go back and talk about their childhood. And I thought about that, and I thought, okay, why? You see, you have to understand where I come from. Now, I don't want to scare you, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I think. So, where I come from. Um, when I was um, two months sober, I sobered up on October the 25th, 1988. So I am, what, 17 years and 11 days sober today. On Christmas, on New Year's, or Christmas of that year, on the 24th, I went into the hospital in one of the deepest depressions I'd ever been in that I could remember. Strange, I'd been bathing my brain in a depressive drug for 24 years. Why would that be strange? But I went in on the 24th of December. I spent Christmas Day in there and I spent Boxing Day in there. When I came out of that hospital and I told Doug B. what had happened to me, he said, why didn't you call? I learned a very important lesson right there. But the conclusion I came to in the hospital, I did not have one of those white flashes that Bill W. had in the hospital. But what I had was a realization that everything I believed in up until that point in my life was a lie. Oh, not some of my political ideas or ideas about history or geology or something like that. I'm talking about the stuff that really mattered. The stuff that was inside here and how you'd be a man. It was all a lie. And that I was going to have to turn my will and the care of my life over to something that was going to train me all new. And I was going to have to get rid of all the stuff. I didn't realize at that time that I was defining the spiritual awakening. Ideas, attitudes, and emotions are cast aside and replaced by a whole new set of ideas, attitudes, and emotions. I just knew that's what I had to do. And I made a promise to myself right at that time never to lie to myself again. I didn't make a promise not to lie to you. I just said I'd never lie to me. So, off I set on my journey. And it was quite a journey. But what this has to do with childhood is this. As I learned, I know an awful lot of stuff. This is the way Doug B. put it to me. I know an awful lot of stuff. I'm a widely read person. It was absolutely useless to me until I put it on the AA template. I was not a well-read alcoholic. A well-read alcoholic is one who has read the big book, regardless of what else they've read. I was a widely read alcoholic, just with a lot of stuff. But among that stuff, I was familiar with a couple of things, such as if you take two twins, if you've got two identical twins raised apart, at 60% of the time, if one's an alcoholic, the other one will be too. So I knew there was a genetic connection there. But I also know if you take two adoptees raised in the same family, they will be no more similar than two people picked at random on the street. And what that means is that the parenting didn't have a lot to do with it. So what it said in my head was, no longer can I blame mommy and daddy. It's me. This was the beginning of me taking responsibility for myself. Now, I've brought that up for a particular reason. 
The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is designed for a person like me because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what caused my alcoholism. That's not the problem. The problem is what to do about it. Who cares where it comes from? It doesn't matter a jot. It says right in the big book, we cannot answer the riddle. We don't know why once that person starts drinking, they can't seem to stop. We don't know why they can't leave it alone. We can't answer the riddle. But the one thing we can agree on is we all have a solution. A solution that works for us. And I had to go through all that mess around in my mess around brain to realize it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But I'm going to go back into my childhood just for a little bit here because... One of the things that kept me drinking, the thing that made me unable to handle alcoholism at all, was the kind of character that I brought to the problem of alcoholism. And the earliest recollections I have are of that character. And if there's one primary thing that I want to say tonight, as I started out my life in a condition of ingratitude, had no gratitude whatsoever. I was brought up in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in Toronto called the Borough of Etobicoke at a time of the 1950s. I had a childhood most of you would have killed for. It was the kind of neighborhood where the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Keeler Mackay, lived down the street, and I played with this kid, Alistair, until he went to private school in Scotland. That's the kind of neighborhood it was. I had an uncle who was one of the ten richest men in Canada, Stuart Bennett, who was always the not always, but often the head of the Royal Winter Fair, the president of the Royal Winter Fair. We'd go down there and sit in the booth, you know, those booths above everybody else, and people wonder who the hell are they. Everybody had two parents. Across the street were the Cunninghams. Next door were the Cleavers. <laughs> Ozzie and Harriet were on the other side. <laughs> Seriously, when I saw those shows on television, so what else is new? We had a summer cottage in Aurelia. We had two homes, three cars. We'd go up to the summer cottage, and in June I'd put on my bathing suit, and it wouldn't come off until September. We had boats to play with, a nice warm lake at Aurelia, Lake Kuchiching, 12 miles long, 3 miles wide, kind of shallow. No matter what I had, it wasn't enough. I had canoes to play with. I had a kayak, or, um, yeah. kayak especially made for people who were doing skin diving and stuff like this, was given to me. My father built me a little boat. It wasn't good enough. The guy down there has got a sea fleet with a seven and a half horsepower. You see, I was always comparing. I was constantly comparing, and I was not grateful. It was guaranteed my father would pay my way, my education, for my education all the way through to a Ph.D. Didn't care. It seemed all my life is nothing but ingratitude. And I didn't realize this until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't realize how damned important it is. It's extremely important. So that's what my childhood was like. Now, one of the problems with that, they say one of the problems in recovery is that childhood seems like only yesterday. Those problems that I had in childhood, and I don't want you to understand something. This is all inside stuff. On the outside, my childhood looks pretty damn good. Yes, my mother, I found her drunk about twice. She switched from the booze to the Valium stuff. My father didn't drink for about 20 years, and they went back to a very controlled little shot of whiskey now and again, a beer on the weekend, that was it. 
So I didn't have a lot of drunkenness played out for me. Sometimes the relationships in the family were cold. But the thing is, that's not important. What was important was my reaction to it. And it, for some reason, I came out absolutely convinced that I was absolutely worthless, that I could not measure up, and I don't know why. But at the same time, I had an air of arrogance that was difficult to deal with. One of my girlfriends, <coughs> who now lives in Black Creek, said, you know, you were an arrogant little schnot. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know. That's exactly what it was. That description of the alcoholic as a person who suffers from low self-esteem and megalomaniac who suffers from low self-esteem, that was me. It was that opposite there. It was funny because just as I was trying, just because, uh, when I was trying to get it together around the age of 16 to 19, I was beginning to feel good about myself. I was a pretty good looking dude. The girls kind of liked me. The guys thought that was cool. I had cars. We had money. All sorts of good things were going on, and I was feeling pretty good. But I was scared shitless about what I was going to do after high school. I hated change. hated changing from public school to high school. hated going from high school to university. I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't. I'm serious. My sponsor has the same problem, so we sat down and had a good chuckle about this at times. And I find this sometimes is quite common. What do you want to do with your life? I don't know. I really don't. <clears throat> the other thing I want you to understand is this. I hear this at meetings. Why don't they teach this stuff to kids? All these AA principles, why don't they teach it to people out there? Wouldn't that be good if they taught it in the schools and all that sort of thing? Here's the good news. They do. Here's the bad news. I didn't listen. They teach this stuff in the churches all the time. They teach it in the school systems all the time. They teach it in the Boy Scouts. They teach it on television. They taught it in all the cowboy movies I saw. All the war movies I saw, everything. Turn it over, take it easy, keep it simple, one day at a time, do first things first. You know, live and let live. Prayer and meditation are better for you than beer and pizza. That kind of stuff. It's all there. Now, I can make an excuse here and say, yeah, but it's cut. the principles are colored with a personality. You know, like the religious beliefs. In chapter four, thank God for chapter 4, because it told my story. We thought we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many articles of faith which seemed impossible to believe. I threw out, turn it over, take it easy, keep it simple one day at a time, prayer and meditation, along with its six-day creation in an Oakian flood. That's what happened. I threw the baby out with the bathwater. And I thought, just as it says in chapter 4, we had dispensed with all things spiritual. I thought I couldn't use them. Because those guys believed them. Same thing with psychology. Same thing with, you know, all the Freudian ideas or anything like that. It was always colored with his personality. And I could use that as an excuse. But I taught myself nowadays to take responsibility. I could have separated the two. I could have done that. Why didn't I do it? I could have seen it. It's because I didn't want to. And I have to accept the mea culpa on this. I didn't want to. It didn't serve my purposes. My purposes were to control and manipulate as much of my environment as I possibly could. That was the purpose. 
But there was another reason, and they state it right in our literature, right in the, um, I think it's the first step in the 12 and 12. Who wants to have a program of total and complete honesty unless their life depends on it? I had no place to use it yet. And besides, around the age of 19, I discovered alcohol. And alcohol made me feel wonderful. No, I didn't pick up a drink because I was in pain and I expected it to solve all my pain. But that's what happened. I drank because everybody else drank. I wanted to be a big boy. I wanted to be like the adults. So I picked up a drink solely for that purpose. But what happened at that time was that I felt absolutely wonderful. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I felt in control of the situation. Alcohol does that to me. It promises me the world. And it says it'll be there on demand any time I want it. And I'll always be in control. What a lie. It took me no more than a year or so to get into serious trouble. When I say serious trouble, it was at the point where I was obsessed with alcohol. What they say in our book, we're obsessed with alcohol. Pretty soon I switched friends. I wasn't interested in the wine and cheese where everybody was civilized. I was interested in the pigs because they drank the way I drank. And if I drank like that among them, I wouldn't stand out like a sore thumb. I learned not to go to the nice parties because I would embarrass myself. They say the first thing that dissolves in alcohol is human dignity, and that certainly is what happened to me. It went. My morals went. My self-esteem went. Everything went. Dr. Harry Tybo, who is Bill W.'s psychiatrist, has a nice little list of the characteristics of the alcoholic that I could sit there and just check right off. Peculiar twisted logic, a rebelliousness against restriction, restriction, a marked immaturity and irresponsibility, a demand for special consideration, egotism and a search for pleasure. That spells prides, by the way, when I organized it right. But he saw it as a result of the battle with alcoholism. And I think for some people that is, I think for all of us that is true. But in my case, a lot of that was there before the alcoholism came along, and it made my alcoholism that much worse. <clears throat> I went through all these stages of alcoholism that they talk about. You know, first fun, then fun with problems, and then nothing but problems. <clears throat> but I got to a point very quickly where the toleration was high. I could drink close to a 26er, be standing on my feet, and somebody would say, you haven't been drinking much, have you? I thought I had arrived. I thought, this is really good. I can drink like a man. This is the first successful thing in my life, was my ability to outdrink everybody else. My friends are throwing up in the toilet, and I'm doing just fine, and I think they've got the problem. No, that's the normal reaction to a 26er. <laughs> You're not supposed to be on your feet after that. So I developed this great deal of tolerance, also a loss of control. I could not guarantee how much I was going to drink once I started to drink. Funny things began to happen. I remember being at a friend's cottage. We had a couple of beers that the parents had given us and then cut us off because we had to drive home. My girlfriend whispered in my ear that what she'd like is another beer. <laughs> her mother, by the way, was alcoholic. We used to drink her beer to keep her mother from drinking it. 
<laughs> that struck a note, did it? <laughs> I often wonder what became of her, but I knew exactly what she meant. And as I drove away, I went through a very uncomfortable straw, which was to become quite familiar. If I ran out of booze, I felt awful. And I noticed the normies, when they stopped drinking, started to feel progressively better. I felt progressively worse. And the only way to solve that problem was to have another drink. There is just no way that I could have just a couple of drinks. Oh, now and again, I tried to solve it by eating a whole pizza afterwards or something like that. And sometimes that worked, but only for a little while. As time went on, it was a guarantee that when I drank, I was going to get drunk. Please understand, I never wanted to. And I began my trips to the psychiatrists and the psychologists. And they would tell me, the reason you drink so much is because blah, blah, blah. And I would say, I don't want to drink so much. Just like in the doctor's opinion, I just want a few drinks. That's all I want. I do not want to make an ass of myself. When I was a kid and I'm sitting in the sandbox and somebody comes up and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I gave the usual cowboy and everything else. I didn't say I wanted to be an asshole. That was not my life's ambition, but that's the way it went. I remember my first visit to a psychiatrist. My father had set this up because when he had drinking problems in the 30s, around the time AA was formed, his father and my mother apparently shuffled him off to a psychiatrist, so he had a great deal of belief in psychiatrists. This guy I can barely remember. I remember one question. He looked at me and he said, are you sexually complete? As far as I know, <laughs> I might complain a bit about, yeah, size or something, but as far as I know. Now, I know what he meant. I was 21 years old at the time, and I said, yes, I am. He didn't ask, I don't remember any other questions. As far as I know, it wasn't very probing. He hauled in my mother and my father and just explained I was sowing wild oats and this is the way 21-year-olds drank and all that sort of thing and not to worry. The next time I went to a shrink was out here in um, Comox. I went to this fellow and he gave me a great big long thing to fill out. And I explained to him, look, when I start drinking, I can't seem to stop at two or three. And he said, tell me about your relationship with your mother. Why? I don't know. After a while, he gave up. A lot of them do that. They just give up. But he suggested Alcoholics Anonymous, and I nodded and said, no, too religious. And he nodded and said, yeah. <laughs> you can tell how many meetings he's been to. And I was, that was a shame. Later on, I was to visit another one, and I said, I don't understand it. When I start drinking, I just keep drinking. And he said, tell me about your relationship with your father. <laughs> so I kind of gave up on the shrinks. This was going nowhere. <clears throat> 1988, March 1st. See, I want to hurry this up a bit because I really like dancing. <laughs> 1988, I had myself a heart attack. And uh, I was 43 years old. Now, is there any wonder for this? You see, one of the things they talk about in the stages of alcoholism is that you start to have health problems. 
on an evening when I would drink, on an evening, when I, on a night and the next day when I would drink, I would smoke at least five to six packages of cigarettes, the ones containing 25. And I wonder why I had a heart attack. I drink all sort or eat all sorts of unhealthy foods, anything that just happened to have lots of fat in it. Is it any wonder I had a heart attack? No. So I had a heart attack. I was drunk at the time. I got up, this strange feeling in my chest, had a couple of Valiums, figuring that was, oh, that was another thing. I got hooked on that stuff as well. That started when I was 30 years old. It had been Great Cup weekend, 1975. I'd been drinking and smoking cigarettes all weekend, and I suddenly leapt out of the chair thinking, I can't feel anything inside my chest. And that was the beginning of these grand mal panic attacks. And I had those panic attacks for the next 13 years. On that date there, I would walk around. I don't know if you ever had one of these. Walk around, walk around, afraid I was going to die, afraid I wasn't going to die. My friends grabbed me, took me down to the doctor's office in Comox, which oddly enough is where the liquor store is now. The doctor pulled down the back of my pants, jabbed me in the ass of some valley, and I said, hello, where have you been? That was my enabler for the next 13 years because I had developed vibrations, a lot of vibrations. Now, the doctor who was giving me that stuff saw nothing wrong with it because he's doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Good news is he sobered up two years before I did. So I had this heart attack. And my new doctor, looking at this Valium, not wanting to fill out these prescriptions, looking at how much I drank, asked me if I wanted to quit altogether. I lied and said yes. And he sent me to a psychologist who specialized in alcohol problems who said I wasn't an alcoholic. Because in those days, they didn't want you to be an alcoholic. You were an alcohol abuser. Aha. So I proceeded with him and with another psychologist down in Victoria to heal a whole schoolyard full of inner children. And got absolutely nowhere. The drinking actually got worse. Because I began to wonder, is anything going to save me? Well, the angel appeared. Good God, the angel appeared. I had a friend who was going out. She had to go to Al-Anon, too, with this guy who was a really, really sick alcoholic and drug addict. Still out there, as far as I know. He had a buddy in the same business, iron workers. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> he had a buddy who was clean and sober about four years at that time, I guess, eh? And she suggested I talk to this guy. He was on the ferry boat one day, and I went and talked to him, and he said, this is nothing to fool around with. And I was beginning to run out of money and things to sell, so I was thinking about killing myself. I was sort of thinking maybe I'd like to sober up. What would it be like to go for a year without booze? So I listened to him for a while, and he gave me Doug B's address and phone number. So I phoned Doug B. Now, I didn't go right away. It took me about two weeks to get there because I had these things to do, right? <coughs> Namely, I had a couple of more things to sell. <laughs> For more, I had one more drunk in me. I just, because somehow deep inside I knew I'm just going to have to quit this business. And every time I phoned him with an excuse, 
I could hear that he knew my insincerity and what the excuse was. And all he'd do at the end of it was say, we love you. Huh? What kind of a place is this? Eventually I went. The fact that it was at 2001 Dizzini Road, the number kind of got to me, I thought was kind of funny. But I went up there for my very first meeting. And I was excited right from that very first meeting. And I haven't had a drink since. Something was going on in those rooms. It's called love. It's that simple. I got loved out of my disease. That very first meeting, I was nervous as I am now. No, I was worse, a lot worse. I sat on this couch that was too low to the floor. He sat beside me. I couldn't see half the room for his knees. (laughs) And he was absolutely wonderful to me. He said everything right. He said everything nice. He was one of the most welcoming people I've ever met in my life, and I want to thank you, Bob, for being there at that meeting. He handed me a big book with his name in it, and I still have it. That was really good of you. You really welcomed a newcomer there and made me feel at home. During that meeting, I heard my story from other people, and I thought, my God, these people have a solution. So I made up my mind to come back the next week and the next week and the next week. And I was really fortunate because this was a meeting in which they read the big book on Sunday night and they read the 12 and 12 on Thursday night. And I got a very good grounding in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, literature that I probably never would have read or looked at. I had to read all the time and hear all these different opinions of. It was fantastic. I quit that group after two years on one issue and that was I quit smoking and they didn't. But I couldn't go in there anymore for that reason. It was making me sick. Um, I found out later that people who do quit smoking, it's not a matter of self-righteousness. It's a matter uh, that we actually get some kind of an allergy towards cigarette smoke and we just can't take it like we used to. So please don't feel that I was being judgmental on that part. I looked around for another group and got Black Creek Saturday night. I picked my sponsor. Um, I come into this program... And I looked around. Now, remember, I'd made a commitment here to get well, to put myself in well's way. This was difficult for me. I didn't trust men at all. When eventually came time to picking the sponsor that I presently have, I picked a guy who was a biker. I figured I might as well go right to the opposite of what I am. Okay? So I picked somebody that I, I, I thought it would be difficult to get along with, but at the same time I was picking somebody who I knew was a big book thumper and taking the program seriously. I noticed there were a group of men around him, all of whom seemed to be fairly healthy, all of whom seemed to not slip. They seemed to have the answers, and I wanted what they had. I wasn't sure what it was, but I wanted what they had. I began to notice other groups. The first two friends I made in AA disappeared, slept, went back. I thought, God, you can do that? And it kind of scared me, and I guess that's what scared me more towards my sponsor than anything. I began to notice there were certain other categories of people who didn't do what my sponsor and his friends were doing, and they did a lot of slipping. What was he doing? He had a home group, and he belonged to that home group, and he took his turn doing things. He had a sponsor, and he used that sponsor frequently. They read the literature. They deliberately put themselves in meetings where the literature was read. They hung out with other people who were also on the same journey. 
They went through the steps and they advocated other people doing so. When they shared, they would say, yeah, I used to feel like that. Now this is the way I feel now and this is how I got that way. Through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I decided to do what they were going to do. It wasn't that easy. In the beginning, I was quite confused. The literature was very strange to me. I'm not a religious person, but I read a lot of religious tracts in my first couple of years when I was in the program because my sponsor told me not to go on a big God search. So I went on a big God search. <coughs> and the, one of the first things I discovered was they don't, dis, they don't agree with each other. But I read a lot. And um, uh, just to clarify things, uh, I'm an agnostic, and I'm doing very well, thank you. I do have a higher power. An agnostic simply means I don't know. And that's new territory for me because I always like to be sure and know. I don't know. I'm still looking. But I do have some ideas of the parameters of that higher power. My power, my higher power is all-loving, ever-present, all-powerful. He's, and he's all-knowing. I had those criteria. I said, that's what I'm going to do. I heard at one time in AA somebody say, make a list of all the things you think God is. Then make a list of all the things you want God to be. Throw away the first list. That was after my God search. This thing went on for a year or two. Anyway, what I was getting to was this. In this God search, I actually read parts of the Koran. And I don't know whether you know anything about how this is formed. The legend behind it. Okay, Muhammad's in the cave, he can't read or write, he's talking to Archangel Gabriel, through which he's asking questions to God. And one of his questions to God is about the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says, how come these writings are so, how did he put it, I can't remember exactly, but confusing. It's very difficult to understand. And God's reply was to confound the wicked and enlighten the righteous. And I thought... Wow, isn't that true? Because that was certainly true for the big book for me. If I'm reading the big book in order to get well, I'll get it. But if I'm reading the big book to find out what's wrong with it, I won't get it. If I'm reading an Old Testament, a New Testament, a Koran, whatever it happens to be, whatever spiritual writings they are, in order to cut them up and say where they're wrong where their history's bad, where their geology's bad, where their superstitions are silly, I'll get nothing. But if I read them in an attempt to get spiritual enlightenment, I'll get something. And that was something very important for me to learn. And I was to carry that forward. Be careful about the messenger, John. I got that off an Al-Anon tape. There was a southern lady who was a, uh, she was a teacher. And she wouldn't pay, didn't want to pay attention to anybody whose grammar was not perfect. And she's explaining this to somebody else in the program. And the other Alan Honor says, Blanche, honey, don't block any channels. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I listen to a lot of people today that I never would have listened to before. I began my journey through the 12 steps. I got a very good look at myself, what was going on. I made a list of those character defects. I put them down in steps six and seven to see what I wanted to work on. I asked my higher power to remove them. Some of them he already had without me even knowing it. The others he did right readily, and there's still a few I'm working on. It's difficult. 
But I figure steps six and seven, the most creative steps in the big, in the um, all the steps, along with step twelve, you can do a lot with those things. I have found step ten is pretty much that way too. I like to do a step series every year. Sometimes I get some criticism for this, but I'll tell you why. It is one of the ways I do step twelve. I'm good at that, so that's what I do. I'm not good at committee work. I'm good at that though. So why not, why shouldn't I do what I'm good at? So it's one of the ways that I have of carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, in many cases, within the meetings. It's also a good way for me to do step 10. By going through the steps again, I can have another look at myself, at least on a yearly basis. It also ensures that I read the literature. I like to facilitate these groups. Oh yeah, you're going to say that's because I like to be in control. Yes, that's true to some extent. But I also do it because I'm the one who has to do the work. It ensures that I do the readings, that I look up everything, because I can't be caught with my pants down. Can't do that. I like to have it at my place because then I have to show up. <laughs> so that's what I do. And I know a lot of people say you only have to go through step four once. Well, okay, that's fine, but when you do a step 10, what format do you use? I might as well use the step 4 format because it works for me. I've used other formats too and they work okay. It's a matter of to each his own choice. One of the things I like about this program is that ambiguity. I don't know why. I'm, a, I'm an agnostic. God has blessed me with a whole bunch of um, sponsees who are born again Christians. <laughs> Figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> <It's a lot. laughs> Where was I going with this? I can't remember now. Any, oh, cut it off. Oh, Ray is pointing to his watch now and saying I'm over three minutes. <laughs> I want that egg timer back that I gave you on your birthday. <laughs> anyway, I will cut it down short because I do like to dance. I want to say this, I'm extremely grateful, extremely grateful, different from what I was before, that I was born in an era when Alcoholics Anonymous existed, because I have thought what would have happened to me before 1935. I'd be dead. I'm glad now that I was born in the neighborhood I was born in, that I had the parents I had. I don't look back on my childhood anymore as something that was bad. I look back on all the good things that went on there because I worked my way through it. This program has allowed me to bury the ghosts of yesterday. I'm also grateful that I sobered up in the Comox Valley. From time to time, I will meet people who say, the AA here is different or something's wrong with it. Now, I never hear that from people who grew up here in AA. I hear an awful lot of people move away and move back because of the AA, but now and again I hear criticism. And the criticism is largely around everybody's and everybody else's business or something like that. What's going on? And I had a friend of mine who was talking about this because he came from AA in a different place. And he was talking about how so-and-so agreed with him. And I said, did you notice that you and so-and-so never really began to grow until you came to the Comox Valley? And he's getting very good now. He said, thank you for pointing that out. And it's true, because in this town, we watch your walk, as well as listen to the talk. I couldn't get away with anything. 
one of my bosses was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years, right over there. What am I going to do? Go up and bullshit her about how I just backed the van into some parked car? <laughs> she knows whether I'm lying or not. I work with alcoholics. I live with them. They're all over the place. The people in here can watch my walk, and I'm really glad that I grew up in the Comox Valley. I don't know what we got here. I was discussing it with my sponsor a short time ago, and he said, well, it's something to do with sponsorship. It's something to do with the founders in this area, because we were talking about Campbell River and Courtney. My sponsor lives in Campbell River. He said it's got something to do with Angie and Doug B and Bob C. Something they did has made this a really good place to be. It's got something to do with the step groups. It's got something to do with, and we started to list, list off the things, and it's all good. This is a really good place to sober up. I am so damn blessed. I used to say lucky, but I got better now. I am blessed. Thank you, God, for making me an alcoholic who recovered in the Comox Valley. And thank you for a room full of very, very loving people. And I hope I haven't bored the tears off you. Let's dance.